Like when I'm in a leadership team meeting and people ask me what I think and we're brainstorming, I literally will have to pick myself up out of my seat and go to the whiteboard and pick up a pen for my own brain to switch off being an author and to switch on getting the insights from the rest of the team and training myself to go last. Those are the types of tactics I need to be in publisher mode. But if I'm in publisher mode, I'm gonna get the best insights from my team on the table, right? Doesn't mean I don't get to add my value. It means I give my team a chance to author, a team, my team a chance to express. And then my joy is like, hey, maybe I can. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we're lucky to have Sikinder Singh Cassidy. Sikinder, thanks for doing this. Jess, excited to be with you. I feel like there's too many things on your resume to introduce you as one thing. So how do you do the, how do you do the owner overview of like 25 years of the ups and downs of like tech success <laughs> and experiments and failures and investing and CEO-ness? I always just say I'm a digital leader with, you know, way too many years of experience building and scaling companies, including some of my own. That's the simple way to put it. <laughs> so can you give people a couple of the highlights, you know, the Google starting your own StubHub sure. and, and kind of how you got to today? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, if you were looking at my, and you and I are both Canadian, so I grew up in Canada, which is awesome. But my career is roughly divided into, you know, scaling kind of larger companies you might know at critical points in their inflection and starting my own companies. And I've kind of been somewhat maybe unusual in going back and forth between those two two activities. So some of the bigger ones you might know, I was at Google and helped launch Local and Maps and then built our international business. So got to be part of Google in kind of pretty formative years from, I guess, a little over a thousand people to when I left, it was 46,000 people, including contractors. And I thought it was big. Little did I know, because it's still <laughs> much bigger than that. Most recently, you might know the company I most recently ran, StubHub, which, as you know, is a global ticketing company, which I ran as an independent division of eBay and that we sold for $4 billion right before COVID, which sounds great on paper until you realize I had to manage through COVID as well, which was not a fun way to spend my time, but a meaningful one, let's put it that And then early in my career, I was at in investment banking. I was at a division of News Corp. And in my first career, my first start in the Valley, I was uh, at a startup that got bought by Amazon. So those are my bigger company stints. I've also sat on a bunch of boards you might know, like TripAdvisor or Ericsson or Urban Outfitters. And then in my kind of entrepreneurship journey, which is the other half of my life, uh, I started a fintech company that ended up being a pretty well-known pioneer called If you've ever looked at fintech apps and the aggregation of all your personal data on the web, Yodley was sort of the pioneer in making that happen. And I was there for five years. I started a second company called Joyous, which was way, way early on video commerce. It's video commerce is all the rage now, but I started the business in 2010 and sold that for quite frankly, quite a small sum. So not a big success. And then my third company is still going. It's called The Board List, uh, which is a platform for placing diverse talent on boards and soon to be an exec teams as well. And that's been bootstrapped by me and is doing good work, I think, that's been recognized by quite a few people in helping to equalize the playing field. But it is an actually a mission-driven for-profit company. And that's still going. And and did I hear that, and I'm going to, I don't know if it's a crew or a crew, yes. got over a billion in... Capital now? In AUM, yes. Yeah. So I'm a venture partner, what's called a venture partner, which means I'm camped out, 
with colleagues of mine while I'm thinking about what to do next post-Dubhub at a firm called Acrew Capital. And there I'm the co-founder of a new fund called the Diversified Capital Fund. You're right, we announced today the closing of that fund. But Acrew itself announced almost $700 million in new capital today that we raised in two funds, of which I was a deep part of one. Thank you. And the fund I was a part of is the late stage fund. But all about kind of changing the face of who gets access to wealth creation. How fun. So all of that is super exciting, but I think what, what might be a little more fun to talk about right now is you are a published author. I, Tell us about the book. <laughs> I always say to people, it's like when people call me an author, I feel a little bit fraudulent. I'm like, I wrote a book. I am not an author. An author implies well, it's somebody a Wall who's Street. actually, I know. It's a Wall Street Journal bestseller. So I appreciate I'm that. Sure. Let's put it that way. I'm like, I, I am thrilled that I've written a book and I'm thrilled that it's been received well. But authors have like much more credibility and books behind them than I ever will, I'm sure. Yes, I wrote a book called Choose Possibility, which is all about debunking the myths that hold people back from taking risks. Okay, so for starters, everybody should be going to Amazon and everywhere and buying their own copy. But I also think that people should go to choosepossibility.com and take your free quiz because mm-hmm. I took it and it was it was interesting and now I want to know what it means. Okay, <laughs> so, well first of all, what I, can I guess that you were a calculator? Am I right? So, what's what's the one with the wings, the top one? Uh, the calculator. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we have four types archetypes on the quiz. I'm going to give away what the quiz results are. There's calculator, contemplator, critic, and change seeker. Okay. So sorry. I I came in at change seeker. Oh yes, you're right. You're change. I came seeker. in at change seeker, but I feel like I'm like the low end of change seeker, high end of calculator. Yes, that's my personal right. assessment. So you're actually you're right. Because there was you're a few right. that I was like right on the cusp, yes. and then now that I read them afterwards, I'm like, ah. Uh, I think I was more of the change seeker and then I got burned so hard. Yes. I like, came to <laughs> I like retroactively started going like, oh, Jess, that sounds really exciting. Remember when you did this last time? Maybe <laughs> you should investigate a little bit before we pull the trigger on that. Well, you probably have already discerned the definitions of the four types, but you're actually right. They all in some ways bleed into each other. So if you haven't taken the risk quiz, you should go ahead and take it. It's two or three minutes. But to answer your question, the change secret to your point is somebody's very comfortable making decisions with change. If anything, they sometimes overcommit. They probably don't miss out on a lot of new opportunities. But to your point, maybe their opportunities to become a little more calculated in their risk-taking. A calculator is somebody who contemplates, weighs the pros and cons, highly analytical, but at the end of the day, probably more comfortable than not making a decision versus the next type, which is a contemplator. Similar, you know, can see the good in all opportunities, highly ambitious, but maybe a little bit more stuck in analysis and thoughtfulness. And overthinking things might be the, the the sin of the contemplator, if you will. They often are the people who say they have more regrets than not in decisions not made, even though they could see and study all the opportunities. And then the last archetype is what we call the critic, which really is a great archetype for keeping safe, creating stable environments, people who see the harm and are like, one might call them overly paranoid. And the irony, of course, is we both know a lot of entrepreneurs who actually have a good amount of critic in themselves as well, right? Meaning they are the most paranoid about their own business. I'm not surprised that you hung on to. I was, pro- I'm quite similar. I probably younger was a change seeker. I changed five. I changed my career five times in seven years, or my job, not my career, but my in the first seven years of my time post school. 
And then I found what I wanted. I settled. Now I consider myself more of a calculator. Like I'm like assessing, <laughs> but I'm quite comfortable taking risk. Uh, yeah. So like <laughs> 10 years ago when I was like a 28 year old CEO running this private equity fund, right? Mm-hmm. We like my partners and I had to, we instituted this like, because it was too, like, as you said, got myself in trouble by making too many decisions, right? <laughs> like, this is not going to sound like pumping the brakes to anyone else. Yes. But we we instituted a 24-hour vesting period on every decision. Oh, my every God. Every decision had so to fun. start having – every decision required one night of sleep minimum. I love it. I hilarious? love it. That is actually That's a not great that- tip. I know most people think probably take a lot more than that. But that was like a big step forward for us is to not decide on the spot. Well, I love it. I mean, I always say to people, I, I, I wouldn't call myself a change seeker, but I'm reactive, meaning, you know, I'm pretty passionate and intense. So for myself, I always have take the night. If it's difficult, take a couple nights. If it's really bothering me, take the weekend. And I literally now have a time frame in which I will hold myself from responding to things, depending on the severity of the situation. And even as a CEO, by the way, that's pretty useful, not just when it comes to risk taking. It's like, do you really want to fire right now off a response or just want to sit on it for a moment and, you know, and come back in a more thoughtful way? So somebody like me, who's maybe like a low change seeker, high calculator. Yes. What, what, what would you say are kind of like, so I've read the strengths, weaknesses, tips yeah. for growth for both yes. of them, yeah. but kind of like if I'm straddling there, what do yeah. you think the strengths, weaknesses, tips for growth are? I think uh, it's, it's a great question. I think the tips for growth really center around being a smarter risk taker. You know, it's, it's to your point, change seeker can see opportunity everywhere, but the real risk of a change seeker, look, you have not had this in your career. Congratulations. It's been a, a remarkable one. But the risk for a lot of change seekers that we see is they're moving too fast from place to place to have impact. And great careers are built on creating impact. I would say that to people, like any risk you have, whether whether or not you get the reward you imagine, being a smart risk taker is not just about making a great choice. It's about playing out your choices and taking you know continued risks to have what I call impact. Be a results producer, be an outcome producer. So I think the real risk if you're a change seeker is that you know you see something new, you go for it. And before you've even sort of fully optimize the opportunity and the choice you've now made, you see the next opportunity, right? So you move from thing to thing. Many of you probably know, you know, people in your organization who create churn because they keep moving from thing to thing. So I think for those of us who are, you know, struggling with whether or not, if you're a change seeker, I'm like, I wouldn't even say slow down, but I'd be like, optimize fully the present, you know, and create your highest impact because that's when you get the compounding benefits for the next risk you're going to take. If it's just risk, 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 without risk, outcome, impact, more outcome, more impact, okay, new choice. You may be short shrifting yourself over the long term because you just keep moving and you don't produce enough impact wherever you are. And then I think for the calculator, look, if there's no perfect archetype, but I'd say the calculator maybe has that balance, which is like, hey, I can make a quick decision, but I'm quite thoughtful every time I move. Uh, I think for the calculator, I think the most important thing is, you know, committing to the ritual and the practices of not sort of calculating once, but continuing to make the calculus. And I always think the smartest risk takers are those who are are those who are what I call heads up and heads down. If you're calculating, you say, hey, guess what? I made a choice. I'm heads down. I'm working, 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 working. But sometimes calculators will keep working at something and they're not having an impact. And at that point, you want to lift your head up and you want to sort of assess and say like, okay, let me assess what's changed in my environment. Why am I not having the impact I want? 
it's time to re-choose. So with the calculator, you may think your job's done when you've chosen once. And I'm like, well, actually, there's this fine balance between choosing too often and sometimes not being ready to re-choose, not, you know, stopping and saying like, oh, what's going on? Why am I not having the impact I want? I'm just going to keep working at it, you know? And those are times where we may need to be heads up and diagnose again. So the calculator, you need to keep diagnosing as you... That's helpful. I, I All of that kind of resonates, unfortunately. So you have had some pretty great praise for this book, co-founders of Zillow, you know, Eric Schmidt, CEO of Google, CEO of YouTube, CEO of TripAdvisor. I mean, like th- a lot of people like this book. If you were going to distill it down in thinking like, you know, there's so many business books out there. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a book nerd, right? Mm-hmm. When you think about what Choose Possibility offers that maybe maybe people haven't seen before that, mm-hmm. you know, what's, what's special about this book? If you were going to distill it, what do you think that, what do you think that sales pitch is? Sure. I think, well, first of all, I think that Choose Possibility is about becoming a smarter risk taker in our own lives. And I think that many business books offer you the thesis, failure is good. Be, have grit, have persistence. You know, you've heard all these phrases and so forth. By the way, have a growth mindset. I agree with all of them. But I think very few books tell you how. Does that make sense? And so like what I do in the book, and I think this is maybe one of the reasons I am proud of writing it, is... I tried to take my career and not offer this as a memoir, but literally a distillation of like, here's the how, here are the tips that like anybody could use today. Because I, do, I think those things were given. Like we all know that, you know, a good dose of failure will make us stronger. Okay. But like, how do you recover? You know, how do you normalize it? How do you like shrink your fear enough just to get into action? We know that risk is good for us. But if somebody said how, I'd be like, okay, the book says, well, you know, the key to success is not one mighty risk. Guess what? Here's the great news. Like, You can make a series of choices and get a lot of them wrong and still be right as long as you commit to the product. And so I think the book is maybe a more pragmatic way of offering people like a roadmap to how, how to become a smarter risk taker and really unlock the benefits for your career of all of these things, you know, choice making, even failure, right? It's about, it offers you a process. That's what I try to do in the book. Oh, that's great. You know, thinking about those decision-making processes, I think one of the reasons I was excited to have you on the show, this this idea of going like right to the beginning of startup, 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 mm-hmm. like, you know, just <laughs> back in napkin ideas and, and like spanning that experience to running multi-billion dollar businesses. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in, you know, there's so many, there's so many folks who are in the startup game that hope mm-hmm. to end up a multi-billion dollar business mm-hmm. and, you know, statistics are against them there, you know, there's. It's a low probability, but I'm interested in any insights that you would have of Mm -hmm. having, you know, been at both ends, Mm -hmm. what kind of advice you would have for those on their way up to increase the probability they eventually get there? Yeah, I think there, well, there's some that are obvious and there's somebody, some that are less obvious. So let's talk about the ones that are obvious and then the ones that are less obvious. The ones that everybody knows early on, like product market fit and the, you know, committing to experimentation to find kind of the kernel of the thing your customers love and are willing to pay for, that's obvious, right? Like there's so many books that have been written about finding product market fit. But I think when you think about like, how do you, okay, so that's maybe how you get from like, you may not fail to actually, you may have a shot of creating something, like literally the odds of failure flipping to like the first kind of belief system that you might be successful comes with product market fit where you're like, oh, I see that when this is working. Go ahead. Well, can I actually ask you about that? Because immediately I'm thinking like, Crossing the Chasm or any of the Steve Blank books, any others that you would put in there of like your, your, what, 
product market fit books that you think are worth a read? Um, not really. I've one's up the food chain because my happy place is actually scaling. So I don't have a book that I really love, but I think that things like the lean startup, like anything with a lean methodology, I sort of feel where you sort of embrace the imperfection and kind of pursue, you know, feedback loops. I mean, there are so many in this genre. I think that they're, they're all, any of them are useful to be honest. But I think if you go up a level from that, you're like, okay, so now you're a toddler. So you're a toddler and you're trying to figure out how you can, you know, get to college, uh, which is a big chunk. And then we can agree from college, it's like to getting a job and, and being successful in the phases of startups. I think in that next pursuit, once you have product market fit, I think it's the risks that entrepreneurs fail to take that may be the things that determine their kind of ability to be successful or not. So let me give you some examples When we're at that phase, we tend to think it's, well, well, we have product market fit. Like, of course, like, you know, we should win. What everybody forgets is 99.9% of the job after you have product market fit is demand generation. Demand, 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 demand. So the question really becomes, okay, like, you know, here you are, startup founder, and you're like, you know, you're spending all this time on the product. What are you missing? Like, I would, that's a time when we talk about that risk taking, move from heads down to heads up. Heads up is everything regarding storytelling, commercialization, fundraising, like making sure you don't run out of money before like you have your first customers. And quite frankly, a lot of those skills are not really native to engineering and product-driven founders. The people who might be good at iteration are actually on commercialization. So do they think, well, if I build it, they will come. And actually that's not true. Like, so you have to kind of create a hard right. And I would say learn new skills. And those skills are often storytelling, sales, like the stuff people hate to do. You know how many CEOs I know who hate like hiring? I'm like, guess what? Hiring is another exercise in storytelling. If you're not willing to do it, I don't know how you bring in the people who help you, you know, commercialize the first salesperson, you know, or even some you can take over from products so you can become the chief salesperson for your own company. So I think in that middle kingdom, you know, once you have product market fit, and I've suffered this myself, like, you know, we all like, we all think if our products are so great, people will come and it's just an pure exercise in learning to sell. And I would say if there's a risk not taken, it's the art of learning to sell. It's like rolling up your sleeves and doing the thing you may, that may not come naturally to you. Whereas for somebody like me, right, the product market fit stage, while it's fun, like I am by nature an extrovert. I love strategy. I love sales. Sometimes in that phase, and I've started many companies, I'm like, ah, like, I just want to, like, I just want to make this thing bigger and get out and sell it. But like you're selling ahead of something that works, right? So I might create the opposite risk in a company, but for most people, it's about product market fit. And then it's about commercialization. And I think the risk not taken there is the risk of learning to sell, the risk of learning to pipeline, the risk of learning to storytell. And let me tell you, a lot of people don't want to take those kind of risks. Like they hate putting themselves out there. Like it just feels so unnatural to them. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense. I, I was lit- I literally had a conversation yesterday with a close friend who his latest company went from zero to $150 million valuation in like just a little over a year. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he, he really said that that had held him back in his previous businesses. Mm-hmm. I mean, besides being like a little bit of gun shy from mm-hmm. a big failure, he worked at a giant success, started his own. It was a big failure, felt a little gun shy. Yeah. But in his own self-assessment, he realized if I'm going to do it again, I, I have to learn how to sell, which he didn't want to do. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. He, he felt like that. He feels like that is the difference of why he's got the funding he's got, why he's got the uh, channel partners that he's got, why he's been able to get the talent to come on. And you guys 
are saying the exact same thing. So it's funny one day after the other. Well, and it's funny, like I said, you I mean sales is a profession that is about risk taking. Storytelling is about risk taking. Fundraise, right? These are all just exercising skills where by their very nature, you're putting yourself out there and nine out of 10 times you're going to fail. That's why people hate fundraising too, because you're telling your story and every single person is telling you no. It's just another sales process. And then one up from there, if I had to boil it all the way down, let's say you've you know, you've met commercialization, whatever, like the really great companies. If you look at what those founders and CEOs do remarkably well, besides, you know, setting a vision, because now you have a flywheel and you actually have, you know, money in the bank and sales coming in the really great ones. My God, can they hire and scale their own like leadership teams? Mm. And so this is, and, and like, I will say the founders who stay in the CEO role and take it all the way, they have two things going for them. First of all, longevity. You recognize it's a winding road, like your company goes through multiple chapters. And so if you were willing to stick it out, right, what ultimately determines your success over the long haul is your ability to, you know, keep pivoting and reinventing, you know, keep finding new areas of product market fit, you know, and obviously extend your commercialization skills. But then it's about like, can you attract and retain great talent? Because at that level, your ability to multiply your, you know, your effect and efforts is all contingent on a team. Like, and these are, this is not like the team of 10 people in your, you know, who you first, you know, bought in the organization. Now we're talking about a company of hundreds or thousands. And it's about, can you recruit and retain talent that themselves can create leverage? And there's some founders who are really good at it, but I think that takes a lot of self-awareness and an ability to not be threatened by people who are, you know, better than you at certain things, right? Well, I'd love to maybe double click on that a little bit. Sure. So let, let's talk about that. Somebody, they they hit their product market fit. Mm-hmm. Um, they did learn those storytelling skills. They, mm-hmm. they figured out demand gen. They got to a certain level mm-hmm. and then they're, they're maxing out, right? Yeah. And it becomes just like you said, how can we bring on the kind of talent that can take us to that next level, right? So, you know, uh, working on our own personal humility, not being threatened by bringing in people who are are better than us at stuff, things like that. What what are the other principles that we would say of making that leap from from level two to level three there? Sure. Well, first of all, let's just start, like, let's just go to where it starts. Self-awareness. Self-awareness as a leader is so critical. I mean, you'd be surprised how many leadership talks, talks I've given over the years to early grads, to CEOs. And I'm like, what are your superpowers? And literally a quarter of the room will put up their hand. I'm like, okay, so either all of you have false modesty or you don't know. Honestly, building a company where you're the founder or CEO and you don't know what you're great at and what your kryptonite is, to me, is like uh, really the beginning of sort of a really difficult period, right? So I think let's just presume that you kind of now need kind of a pretty big dose of kind of self-understanding, both again, your gifts and, and what you're not great at. We talked about recruiting and recruiting great talent, but here's what happens the minute that great talent comes in an organization. Your third skill now is to figure out how to move from what I call author to publisher. And this is another place. So like you recruit great talent, like why will they stay? They're going to stay if they have some ability to not only create leverage for the organization, but paint a vision themselves, right? And so You know, the third skill besides self-awareness and recruiting, now you're in this phase where you're like, you have to figure out like at what point you put on your facilitator hat and your editor hat and literally park at the door every authorship instinct you want to, you know, and this is very hard for many founder CEOs, even for me, like I'm pretty opinionated. If you ask me what to do, I always have an opinion on my companies, always like I'm always thinking about them. That's what we do as founders and CEOs. And so, but the natural instinct of anyone, even the best people you hire, will be to defer to you unless you create the room for them to author. 
And so recognize that I think the third skill people really need to learn is like how to manage their own energy in what I call publisher versus author mode. And for some of us, it's easier and for some of it's harder. So for somebody like me who always has an opinion, it takes really crisp practices. Like I tell my leaders, like you either manage me or I manage you. If I manage you, believe me, that's not a recipe for success. Because if I'm managing you, I am managing you and I'm telling you what to do. And like, I'm not sure you're going to be very happy with that. And for me, I actually quite find management quite draining because I'm like, you know, I'm like, why am I doing your job for you? But if I never give you a chance to do your job for yourself, then like I haven't done a good job as a leader. So I say to people like come in with an agenda, literally. When I say, if you want to direct a conversation with me, the best way is please don't come with a blank sheet. Just walk in with your Google Doc and three points. You're going to take control of that conversation pretty naturally for me, right? Number two, like when I'm in a leadership team meeting and people ask me what I think and we're brainstorming, I literally will have to pick myself up out of my seat and go to the whiteboard and pick up a pen for my own brain to switch off being an author and to switch on getting the insights from the rest of the team and training myself to go last. Those are the types of tactics I need to be in publisher mode. But if I'm in publisher mode, I'm going to get the best insights from my team on the table, right? doesn't mean I don't get to add my value. It means I give my team a chance to author, a te- my team a chance to express. And then my joy is like, hey, maybe I can add the unique insight or the additional insight that helps us culminate and get to a decision to move forward. And guess what? I then get to go work on my next problem and draft ahead, which is really, you know, my happy place. So that's the third one. And I've, I have a bunch more. We can keep going if you want. But those are some of the tactics that I think people need to learn as a leader in this phase. Yeah, let's hear a couple more. These are great. Uh, what are a couple more of my favorites? Number one, I always say, find your priest, claim your religion. And people are like, what? what, what, what do you mean? I'm like, okay, so if you're a leader and you're working on yourself, your strengths, your weaknesses, you know, how to turn author publisher, like what is your support system? And people often think, well, my support system is my spouse, my board of directors. And I would say, well, I'm not sure it is your board, you know, yes, you want to share with them your authentic self and they're going to do your 360 review, but they also are managing against, you know, to shareholders. And so you want somebody who's only invested in your success with whom you can be 100% authentic and imperfect. And I don't think any of us want to show up. We want to show up authentically, but we don't want to show up with all our laundry hanging out to our board all the time. So I would say, okay, well, maybe there's somebody you need to find from your network, a fellow entrepreneur or CEO, or if you can afford it, a coach. And then other people think it's their spouse. And I'm like, okay, well, that's a pretty difficult place to be. Because if you're a spouse, you also expect to give and get energy from a personal relationship. And I'm going to my spouse who, A, by the way, has a vested interest in, you know, in our dynamic. So what I may want individually may or may not have a role to play. Number two, they may not know my context. And number three, I'm taking energy from a pretty valuable relationship and draining it entirely. Like I'm draining the swamp and not the swamp, draining whatever the relationship is. And then leaving that person fairly high and dry and not with a lot to give back to them. So I don't really like to use all my personal and family energy, right, to get my answers for work. So that's another one. And then I think the last one is I always say this to people. You know, when you think about leadership, I always think about like cycling. I'm not a great cyclist. Like I can't. But the one thing I love about cycling is this principle of drafting, right? Like so while it's true that sort of the pack is there to support the person in the lead, it's also true that they're giving leverage to that person, right? And the person in the lead, I, I'm always like, okay, if I'm a CEO, I want to be drafting ahead. I want to be looking around the next corner. My team needs me to anticipate. They need me to be sometimes heads up because they're heads down. But the converse is if I'm way ahead and they're behind and they're not filling in the gap I was just in, there's not a lot of joy for them or leverage. And there's no leverage for me. How do I keep scaling, right? 
So I think you want a team that is drafting behind you, meaning like they're pretty close in. You keep bringing them along. They're filling in the space behind you and they're growing their own skills at an accelerated rate. And, you know, and you have the capacity to like surge ahead and look around the next corner. So I think like you never want to be so far ahead that like you're always pulling your team behind you and then you feel like a drain. And quite frankly, they feel like they're out of the loop. That's not really a fun place to be. But the converse is, you know, you know, your job as a CEO or a founder or an entrepreneur is to be heads up and to be able to look around and anticipate. But that only happens if you create leverage for your team and from your team. Oh, those are so cool. That's like another book. Now you know your your second book is about. Well, it's so funny. Specifically, you will laugh because you know I pitched the publisher on two book ideas. One is called Operating Range, which is this new way to think about leadership, and the other one was How to Take Risk and Thrive. The publisher, the agent, was like, "They're both good books, but that one on risk is the one that everybody needs." The one on sort of, you know, how to up yourself as a leader, like that one, maybe is maybe it's your next book, but it's not nearly as maybe impactful. So. I'm glad you think well, it's useful as, content, though. <laughs> yeah. As soon as it's done, come back on. We need okay. to have another show All right. with you. Well, maybe I will just write that book at some point, but maybe not. This is like, this is a lot of work and I have a day job. <laughs> well, what you can do is you can just have one of your, you know, h- hire some staff to transcribe this episode, <laughs> right? Yes, have a ghostwriter fill in the blanks and come back to you for editing. Don't <laughs> actually write the book. There you right? go. No, like it's a, true. And it doesn't have to be a book. It could just be a monograph, you know? Yeah, it could be. Like, you're, you're, you're pushing all my buttons right now. Like, my problem is I see too much possibility. So you're like, Sukinder, do it. And I'm like, oh, maybe I should. But anyway, I, but, but those are some of the things I do think about, you know, when you're trying to scale yourself as a yeah. leader. Well, listen, this, I think it's a great place to end part one of the episode. Everybody tune back in for part two. I've got a whole bunch more questions for Sukinder. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And make sure to go to Amazon and get your own copy of Choose Possibility. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Jess.